Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Today's guest is the deputy director at Health.com. Esther Crane is the founder and editorial lead of Health.com's Invisible Illness series. I'm really excited and a bit nervous to share that I'm being featured on the site tomorrow, January 22nd, which just so happens to also be my birthday. So be sure to head over to health.com to check it out. But first, I'm thrilled to talk to Esther about her experience at health.com and why she launched this column. Welcome, Esther. Thank you, Harper. So happy to have you here. Yeah, I'm thrilled. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. I am a writer and editor. Right now, I work at health.com, which is the digital counterpart for Health Magazine. I am from New York City. I grew up partly in New York City, and then my family moved to New Jersey. But I've been back in New York now, almost now it's, I would say, most of my life is New York City-based. I love it. I remember when we first met, we were talking about like <laughs> being real natives, true natives. 41, baby. <laughs> yes, there's not many of us left, so I love that. So how did you get into the publishing world? Where did that even start? Well, I always wanted to write, even as a little kid. It's funny, I was just going through some of the things in my parents' house, and they kept like all of these old magazines and newspapers that I would, you know, like create for them when I was a little kid. So I always had that interest, and um, I focused on it in college and got internships and came to New York, which is, you know, the publishing center, and somehow fell into the women's lifestyle magazine world. And I realized that in that world, the one thing that interested me the most was health. And that's where I've been now for most of my career. And how did you get into the health world and especially in the health publishing world? It might sound kind of funny, but I found that in the kinds of publications that I was working in, one of the things that was like easier to write about that I could focus on and that involved the kind of reporting and research that interested me, as well as the real stories about real people, was health. And it just became a really good fit. I just enjoyed learning about health and I enjoyed keeping track of like news and developments in health. And I also just really like focusing on other people's narratives about their health. I love that. And so you've been at several magazines, which are? Um, I've been at Cosmo. I did a stint at Glamour and I did shorter stints at Self. I did one at Shape. But now I'm at health.com, which, you know, I really like. And how long have you been there? Um, about two and a half years. Okay. And your focus is on what? Well, health is health. So um, one of my things that I focus on is helping to develop some of our narrative features. And one of those is a series called Misdiagnosed, which focuses on women who have been misdiagnosed or undiagnosed or have felt like their symptoms were not heard by their doctors and they're still struggling to figure out what they have. And also a feature series called Invisible Illness. And that would be focusing on women who have conditions that 
you know, if I just met them or maybe even worked with them or knew them socially, I would think that they were healthy and that nothing was quote unquote wrong with them. But at the same time, they're struggling with something that it's just not seen, it's not visible. But they might be struggling on a, you know, day to day basis with some kind of a condition or disorder that um, really detracts from their day to day life. And how did you decide to create those two columns? Well, first of all, again, I, I really love the personal narrative. You know, I love a good, well-written news report or a story about a new study, but it's the personal narrative that I think really draws me and other readers in. And we were trying to come up with what's a way to focus on people's own stories of being in, not just having a, a health issue, but dealing with the world of healthcare, which is such a huge topic today. And we heard about all kinds of studies and surveys about women who felt like they were not getting their symptoms heard. They would go to the doctor and they would be told, you know, oh, you have anxiety, it's all in your head, or you might have, you know, this condition. And they might bring up, you know, like, oh, but, you know, I was doing my Google research, as we all do, and you're hit with some weird symptom. And it pointed to this, and they might, you know, raise the name of a condition. And doctors, you know, would just say, like, you know, no, it can't be that you're too young, or no, that's crazy, like, get off Google, you know, you're coming up with weird things, it's not that. Or they might even have been hearing that what they had was totally normal. You know, this intense pain that you're experiencing, you know, whenever you get your period, like, that's just normal, deal with it, you know. Sure, okay, you can't get out of bed, you can't go to work or school, but sorry, it's just normal. And they're sort of knowing that it's not, but that's what they're hearing from the larger healthcare world. Do you think that that's become a more prominent thing recently with women? I do. I think that there's a lot of attention on that because people are looking into it more. There's a couple of studies that have come out, and I just went to a conference put on by um, a group that the one thing that they look into is diagnostic medicine and errors in diagnostic medicine and how can we diagnose people better? Because if you can't get the right diagnosis, you're probably not giving them the right treatment. But it was really fascinating. And you find you what was really wonderful about it is that there were, you know, at least a thousand doctors I would, you know, attend these forums with throughout the day. And they are truly committed to reducing the errors in diagnostic medicine. When you yourself go to the doctor and you feel like you're not being heard or you've gone to several doctors and you feel like nobody's on your side, nobody's trying to help you out here, you don't realize there's a whole, you know, at least I was in this room, these giant auditoriums with so many doctors, and they're all trying to figure it out. They are coming up with technology that is going to help diagnose people better. They're coming up with ways to question patients to get at symptoms in a better way so that the, not only does the patient feel like they're heard, but the doctor really hears it. It's interesting because I was at a doctor yesterday that I love and trust so much. And she and I were talking about another doctor that I had seen many, many years ago. And I said, oh, maybe, you know, she told me about a patient of hers that she was trying to find some answers for. And I said, well, maybe you should have this patient go see this doctor who diagnosed me years prior. And she was like, no. I said, why? You know, she diagnosed me after 10 years of no answers. Why wouldn't you send her to this person? And she said, she's good at finding a diagnosis. And then she sends people on their way. And I said, well, I think that serves a purpose. It sure does. But it also is challenging when you get a diagnosis. And then what do you do? And this doctor is basically saying, like, 
Here's your answer. Go figure it out mm-hmm. from the rest. Yeah. And so it's this challenging balance of like, what are you actually looking for? Are you looking for the diagnosis? Are you looking for solutions? Are you looking for both? And can one person give you all of that? Right, exactly. And it's interesting you bring that up. Can one person give you all of that? Perhaps they can't. Perhaps there are doctors who, the way their mind works, they're very good at getting at what is actually wrong with you. And then maybe there's a whole other doctor who their bedside manner, their way of treatment, the person that you're going to probably be interacting with more is just a better fit for you or it's just their own personality. Yeah, I think it totally depends. I keep hearing a lot of these horror stories like you're talking about how doctors are just sort of poo-pooing people and making them feel like their symptoms are not real and it's all in their head. And I've been really fortunate that I haven't really dealt with that maybe as a kid and I don't really remember it, but it seems to be like a really big issue. So how do you decide what stories to feature in the Invisible Illness series and the Misdiagnosis series? Well, we look for different conditions just because we want to reach um, readers who have these conditions or have been in that person's shoes, basically, with those kinds of symptoms. And, you know, maybe they haven't figured it out yet. And maybe they're reading this. And, you know, we just profiled a woman who had it's a type of traumatic brain injury that doesn't cripple you or keep you, you know, in the hospital in a coma or anything like that. But um, she had a traumatic brain injury from a concussion. That was just a fluke thing where she was in an improv class and somebody's leg went into her head. It knocked her. You know, it it certainly hurt. It wasn't a minor thing, but she immediately went to the doctor. She was told, you know, you have a concussion. You don't think a concussion is going to cause long-term brain damage. And she's going through life day-to-day navigating that right now. She doesn't look like she has any sort of traumatic brain injury. She goes to work. She functions. But her life has been severely curtailed by it, and there's no idea when it will go away, quote unquote, or when it will ease up and she can function better. Yeah, I watched that video. It's really scary to think about. It's very, we look for stories that are very relatable. It's not somebody who did something extremely risky, like, you know, went skydiving or bungee jumping or, you know, is a stunt performer and, you know, this kind of thing could happen to them. We look for people who are very relatable in their day-to-day world, something happened or they started developing symptoms, you know, and it was just, it could happen to any of us type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So you write these articles, but you also do video content. Exactly. So how do you decide what goes into video and what makes the story compelling and, you know, what to include? Um, Really just the relatability factor. We like to take the video, we like to watch or have the cameras focus on the person in their own environment, their own home, their own neighborhood, um, just because we can all relate that way rather than bringing them into like, I don't know, like um, a soundstage or something where, you know, you don't see yourself up there. We make it very personal, very selfie style, and we can all relate to that. Yeah, the selfie style thing is is interesting. I remember when I was emailing with your video team and they were like, can you send videos of yourself in your day-to-day life while you're you know, administering drugs or going to the doctor or coming Mm -hmm. to the podcast studio. And I'm like, wait, I have to do selfie videos? Like, this is terrifying. (laughs) I was more afraid of that than them coming into my house and like taking over my apartment. But it is really about the day-to-day stuff. exactly, And seeing what it's like, not just the scripted things. I mean, just, you know, we did an invisible illness feature on a woman with bipolar disorder and the amount of medicine that she has to take 
to control her own particular condition is, you know, it was just really shocking. But that's something that the video really pulled out and really revealed. I love that. And what kind of response have you gotten to the column? We've gotten great responses. Um, People just really feel like this is me. We did a story of a young woman with fibromyalgia, which is very tricky to diagnose. And it typically strikes older women and men, but mostly women. And she was a 22-year-old new college grad. I mean, just I was just looking through some of the responses. They were tremendous. And there were just people who said, like, that's my life. I thank you for shining a light on this. Hopefully other people will understand what it's like. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing that I've recognized from hosting this podcast is seeing the response from people going like, I'm no longer alone. Hearing these stories or confirmation that they're not the only one going through this. And you can go on Google and find, you know, different things out there. Mm -hmm. But to read something as reputable as health.com and see that there are people that are being recognized with these same conditions is really huge. I get entries from people all the time trying to be on the podcast and share their stories just to raise the awareness, Mm -hmm. not even for them to have the feature, but for their illness, their misdiagnosis to be featured. Right. And I'm sure with the podcast, they just feel like, you know, I want to share my experience, not because I want to reach necessarily just other people who have the same experience, but I want the world that I interact with to just kind of know that people like myself were out there. You know, not everybody is just walking through, you know, the picture of health. And there are different types of invisible illnesses. They can be purely physical. They can be a mental illness, emotional, neurological. It's just, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are struggling and they want to share their world and we want to help them share it. I love that. And I think also a huge part is that I say this very often, is that no matter what the condition is, there's a lot of relatability whether you have the same condition to someone else. I've connected with many people with invisible illnesses that are mental and emotional, and I'm going, Mm -hmm. wow, our things are so different. Mm -hmm. Our symptoms are totally different. But the things that we deal with, whether it's doctor's appointments or just navigating the system, is so, so similar. Mm -hmm. And there's also, even if the invisible illness is a purely physical one, there's a huge emotional and mental component to it. And that's one of the things that some of our subjects have shared is that You know, not only do I have something like fibromyalgia, but just dealing with people's responses to that, which for a young woman is basically like, you have what, huh? Well, you look pretty healthy to me. You know, just the emotional component of explaining that when you meet new friends, when you date, when you get deeper into a relationship, when you have a new job and you have to tell your boss, you know, hey, I might need, you know, a few extra work from home days here's why. And they kind of look at you quizzically like, uh, okay, there's an emotional component to that. You feel, frankly, kind of invisible, hence the name. What have you personally learned from, you know, writing these columns and hearing people's stories? That there's that larger emotional and mental struggle. Um, I always find that extremely illuminating. Like we just said, like an invisible illness doesn't stop with the physical illness. Um, And also just how many people in the world are struggling, in my own world, frankly. It makes you much more aware of that and much more empathetic to people who maybe you encounter them as a coworker. You get the feeling that something is, quote unquote, wrong. You don't want to ask, and maybe that's a good idea. They might not want to share. But just kind of being aware and knowing, it helps them and it helps you. 
So to your point about sharing, when we first met, we were sitting in a meeting with your coworker and she said, you know, maybe it would be great to have you on the show and talk to Harper and talk about why you started this column. And I said, great, let's do it. I'm interested. And then she said to you, I'm not sure actually why you started this. Do you have an invisible illness yourself? Your response was, I have a health condition, but I don't consider it a invisible illness. So I just wanted to just sort of bring this up and address what it is that you have and why you don't think that your endometriosis is an invisible illness. Um, well, I have endometriosis. I guess I found out that I had it, you know, officially maybe like 10 years ago or so, although I always had symptoms, but they weren't, you know, it wasn't anything. I went to the doctor and she diagnosed me, you know, so first of all, I wasn't misdiagnosed. I wasn't struggling with, you know, not knowing, which is, you know, a horrible uncertainty to have to deal with. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace, through a secure online platform, and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash made visible. That's betterhelp.com slash made visible. And now back to the show. And I also feel that the kind of illness that endometriosis is, it's very, uh, at least for me, it's very cyclical. Sometimes it can be pretty bad. Um, most of the time it's not. So that's why I just, I don't view it that way personally. At the same time, I know that it is for many other women. This is just my own personal experience with it. And why do you not consider it invisible? I don't because most of the time I don't have to deal with it. It goes dormant. You know, I was diagnosed with it. If anyone's familiar with it, they sort of staged it the way they staged cancer. And I did have stage four. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, you know, I'm not dying. It isn't cancer. (laughs) But they staged it that way. I had surgery. It came back as it usually does. But just right now, the mysterious nature of endometriosis is that it can come back, but you might experience it differently. It might be on different body parts. You might not feel it the same way. You might not feel the same pain. And luckily, thank God, knock on wood, um, I haven't. So that's just my personal experience, though. I know that one of the most common invisible illnesses that I hear about, however, is endometriosis. For other women, it's day-to-day debilitating. Yeah, we featured on the first episode of season five, we have Lara Parker who talks a lot about it, and it's completely debilitating for her. She wrote a whole book called Vagina Problems. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge, huge thing. But it's interesting to just sort of acknowledge that it's not considering what you do for a living and what you write about and what you feature 
is something that could be relatable, but not really for you. Yeah, no, I'm able to forget about it. You know, and I had for the large majority of my life, I didn't know I had it. I knew I had terrible cramps and I had odd pain. And it wasn't until I had um, endometriomas, which are the cysts around the ovaries. And I realized, oh, so that's why I feel these bulges constantly. You know, they were that bad. Wow. But it's just me personally, I don't view it that way. And I'm lucky that I don't have to. I don't think about it. It doesn't really affect me. Again, at the same time, I really do want to emphasize that that's not everybody's experience. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the goals and things that you want to feature in 2020 on health.com this year? Well, we want to continue both series. We want to also focus more on stories that are not just about personal health, but involve health care, getting health care, getting to the doctor, financial issues, insurance issues, accessing health care, I guess, is the way people put it today. You also mentioned when I saw you recently, caregiving being an important component. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that's another thing. I almost feel like being a full-time caregiver to somebody with an illness is in its own way an invisible illness. The stress of that is tremendous. Dealing with the uncertainty and the stress is its own is its own health issue. And I think that that's something that needs to come out of the shadows. Yeah, I agree. The caregivers that we've featured on this show have gotten a ton of attention and response because it's a story that needs to be told. And they're the people that sort of go in the shadow to a certain extent because people just think, okay, you got to deal with the patient and they're the number one priority. Mm -hmm. But then there's the people that are taking care of them and how are they navigating and their self-care. And how does a patient feel about being taken care of primarily by one person? It's a really tricky thing, and it's something that we really want to explore. So in working in the publishing world, what do you think that writing can do and sharing these stories, aside from helping people feel less alone, what do you think this content and such a huge platform can do for people? Um, well, first of all, you know, making them feel less alone is a big part of it, but it also broadens our empathy towards other people. If you approach people that you don't know or don't know very well, with the idea that, hey, everybody's probably dealing with something. And for a lot of people, that's uh, an actual illness that worries them and it might be tricky to treat. I think it just makes our world like a little friendlier. I think it makes us all a little softer. And I think that's a good thing. How does it work to decide what series you create and who's approving them? Like, how are you deciding, you know, how it works? Well, we all talk, we all have ideas meetings, and we have meetings about special franchises, as we call them. And we really just look to see, like, what's not being done that we're all talking about. Where is there a gap out there in things that we just among ourselves and among our own social circles and family and friends, what preoccupies us and what we're talking about, you know, that's not being addressed. And that's how we decide. It's really crazy that these are two topics that are just not really addressed. There's such massive Mm -hmm. things, and there's millions of people around the world who are dealing with both of them. Absolutely. I mean, there's the Netflix show uh, Diagnosis. There's the New York Times column that's affiliated with that. Right. There's so many different things that are starting to come out just in this last year. Why do you think that all of a sudden there's attention on it? I think that there have been some interesting studies And that's really interesting. But the power, I think, comes from the humanity. 
from hearing about a woman who spent 11 years being told that she has uh, psychosis and she should start smoking weed to relax her nerves and the tremors that, you know, seize her body every day will go away when she really actually has a form of Parkinson's disease. When you hear about that, that really hits you. That really makes you think, well, that could be me. That could be my spouse. That could be my partner, my mother, my father, my child. And it really hits home that healthcare is so personal. At the same time, the personal story um, resonates with so many people. I agree. I've never been someone who reads a lot of the data and research studies. But when I read the personal narratives, that's what I relate to. Exactly. Me too. And that's what um, we're finding at Health, what our audience is relating to as well. That's awesome that you're able to sort of convert what you're hearing, what you're seeing in your own personal friendships and circles and bring it to your audience. I mean, I've always found it, you know, people are always really down on social media. And I, I get it. I mean, there is a type of social media that's, you know, very me focused on very superficial things. But one of the things that I think is fantastic about social media is it unites people around a cause or a disorder or an illness or even just a constellation of symptoms, and it makes them feel less alone. And it gets the word out that this is going on, this exists, and it brings attention and the medical community can start addressing it as well. I agree. I found so many different Instagram handles recently mm -hmm. of really fascinating people sharing their story that is not about woe is me. Right. It's totally trying to raise awareness, share their story, be more relatable, and just know that, you know, other people are going through this too. It also reminds you that somebody having a, a serious illness or disorder, your approach shouldn't be, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, it can be, what can I do? How can I help? How can I spread the word? And that is very empowering. It's not a big pity party. So the other day I posted a card that I saw in Barney's on Instagram and it received hundreds more likes than I've ever gotten on any post ever. And the card was, I'm so sorry you're sick. I want you to know that I will never try to sell you some random treatment I read about on the internet. Oh, I love that. And it received more likes than I've ever received That's on fantastic. anything. And I think it's just so spot on for the invisible illness community. It really is. For people to realize, like, stop telling me what to do. There's nothing I find more infuriating than when I read a personal narrative in a major newspaper or a magazine, and it's so gripping, and I'm, you know, it's really well written, and it's this person has really shared so much. And you read the comments, and every, like, 10th comment is somebody who says, like, my uncle had that and he cured it by drinking, you know, carrot juice. It's just, you know, Fascinating. you want to just, I don't know why those comments, you know, I guess it's fine that people see it to realize that somebody's out there, you know, trying to sell you a cure, but it's not, it's not. I get cool. a lot of spammy comments like that that it I'm is deleting regularly. So frustrating. Yeah, agreed. If people want to be considered for either of these series, the Invisible Illness or Misdiagnosed series, is that something that they can oh, apply absolutely. for, contact you? How does that work? Um, we have contact email set up, so you could just email misdiagnosed at health.com. We also have invisible illness at health.com. They can go on our website and go to the Invisible Illness and Misdiagnosed. Um, we have special landing pages on the website. And we have uh, contact information there as well. 
And make sure to also check out the YouTube page, which has yes. my video and other amazing stories of other amazing women. Mm -hmm. So where can people learn more about you, these columns, and all that's going on with health? Health.com. It's very simple, <laughs> um, straightforward, but we'll have lots of stuff coming up for the new year, focusing on personal narratives with health. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Harper. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.